if you make your personal finance all about restrictions, you make it all about denying yourself enjoyment or happiness, you're probably not going to last very long or you're probably not going to have a very successful, happy, balanced life. Rather, our suggestion is actually you need to allocate that little bit of fun money because it's only going to make it more practical, more sustainable for you in the long term. Aaron Tang is the country manager of LUNO, Malaysia's first and largest international cryptocurrency exchange. He's also the founder of the popular blog, Mr. Stingy, which is a blog dedicated to the art of optimization. On this blog, he writes on topics such as personal finance, career, relationships and life in general. His work has been published on international websites like the Huffington Post, The Goodman Project and Business Insider. Today, we have invited Aaron to speak to us about six practical money principles to up your personal finance game. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hello, Aaron, and welcome to the Explore This podcast. We are looking forward to our chat with you today. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So, Aaron, you recently published an article titled The Practicality of Money on your website, Mr. Stingy. We'll be sure to share the link in our show notes. Personal finance is exactly what it's called. Personal, right? It's very contextual, very highly dependent on who we are, what our background is, the stage of life we're in, as well as the beliefs we're brought up about money. So before we jump into the six money principles that you talk about in that article, we want to let our listeners know a little bit more about you. So how did the name Mr. Stingy come about and what inspired you to start this blog on the art of optimization? I've always had this, you can call it a maximizer kind of personality, like trying to figure out how to extract maximum value from whatever you're doing. So, I mean, Stingy, you could say it's just a play on the words because it's like trying to figure out how to optimize your money. So that's where the name came from. Overwhelmingly, it's not just about being money. I, I write about a ton of things on, on my blog. I write about making the most out of your time, your career, your relationships as well. For whatever reason, I have become more well-known for my money, personal finance-related writings. But yeah, I guess that's just the way it is. And the topics that you write about on your blog definitely resonate with, you know, people like Janice and myself. And, you know, at the start of this conversation, we mentioned how we've been following your blog as well as Twitter for, for years now, right? So it's really cool to have you on this podcast where you're able to chat with us as well as share some of some ideas and beliefs that you have about personal finance. So with that, I want to know what is one overarching guiding principle that you have when it comes to personal finance in your life? I'm going to share you three, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Right, and, right. and these are not original, right? I, I got this on, on one of Morgan Housel's tweets. Morgan Housel is, of course, the guy who wrote the book, The Psychology of Money, which is really, really amazing book. And it, there's so many things that I personally believe which have been defined so clearly in the book. Anyway, the three principles that he said are, number one, spend less than you earn. Number two, invest diversified for more than 10 years. And number three, expect and accept volatility. So in his tweet, which was pretty viral, he said that actually 90% of finance is just these three principles, 90%. So I thought that was a really, really powerful way to describe what most of us should probably just be focusing on. 
Yeah, that's really great, Aaron. And I think another thing that you also mentioned on your different posts as well is that there's no one best way to manage money. There's something that works for you. There's something for that works for people like Sarah and myself, you know, in our sort of late twenties. And at the same time, there are also ways to get better with money in practical and reasonable ways, which is something that you helpfully wrote about in your latest blog article. So maybe let's dive into your first point. You wrote about how one can use money to buy happiness, right? And a common quote that we have heard growing up is that money actually can't buy happiness. But on the contrary, we came across a quote recently by a Harvard Business School professor, Michael Norton, who is the author of Happy Money. And he says that if you think money can't buy happiness, you're not spending it right. So we want to get your thoughts. What do you think about that quote? Yeah, thanks, Janice. I absolutely agree, 100% agree. And I think the the thing about money advice, money tips, or even money articles that people like us often read in media is because money is such a personal topic, something that you brought up about uh, one minute ago. Money is such a personal topic. It's very different for for people in, say, their 40s or different for a student in their early 20s, it's very hard to give one-size-fits-all kind of advice. So the the very basic information that you read about money is often overly generalized, right? Because you can't tailor-make one popular article for just the people in their teens or you can't tailor-make it for people in just their 50s. So often what you see is just a very broad generalization, And that generalization has come to certain cliches, things like, oh, don't spend money on coffee or, you know, money actually can't buy happiness. Or even if we're broadening the scope, it's like you have to pursue your passion and then you'll have a very good life. No, things like that, right? But when you dive a bit deeper into the details, that's when you actually realize that there's a lot of nuance. I, I guess you can call it second level thinking that you can do about these things. And it comes to money. I think money can buy you happiness in the sense that Number one, it offers you security. So your most basic needs, right? Your shelter, your food, your security, your comfort. Or put it the other way, if you don't have money and if you don't, if you aren't able to take care of these needs, then you're absolutely going to be sad. You're going to be miserable, right? Because these are your base level needs. But apart from that, we can find that money can give us many, many other things. For example, it can buy you experiences that you're happy. It can give you freedom to pursue things you're interested about. And third of all, you know, perhaps the the most common one, it allows us to love or take care of our friends and families and our loved ones. So that's some examples of how people can actually use money to buy happiness. Mm. So I kind of want to dive a little more into that, right? Because in your article, you wrote that your recommended advice is to set aside some money to blow every month instead of restricting yourself. Like you mentioned, like no coffees, no avocado toast, as they always say, you know, the millennial love. So after you save money, we should be reminded to also spend some fun money. F-U-N, not F-U-N-D. Yep. So actually many of our listeners are young working professionals and some of them are probably figuring out, you know, I don't know what is the best allocation for me in terms of how many percent should I save? How many percent should I uh, allocate to expenses? And how can I allow myself to have that fun money portion? So what would your recommended allocation be? Going along the theme of money advice that's practical and reasonable, one of my favorite, I guess you can call it systems, is the 50-30-20 budget. So 50% is for needs. And when I say needs, it's for things like your fuel, your housing, your food, 
these are your basic needs or even paying your education loan, etc. That's 50% of your monthly budget. And then 20% is actually for savings and investment, right? That's for the emergency savings, that's for investing for the future. And then 30% is actually for the wants. So if you can consider your wants, for example, travel, eating out, going out on dates or going out with your friends, that comes from the 30%. And that fund money also should come from that 30%. Now, again, just to add some context, yeah, you know, if you maybe decided that you wanted to tweak, let's say, instead of 50% on my needs, I just spend 30%. Maybe I'm lucky enough to live with my parents and then I can save more money, I can invest more money. I think when I wrote that article, it's not so much the specifics of the numbers that I'm interested in. Rather, it's the, the principle that if you make your personal finance all about restrictions, you make it all about denying yourself enjoyment or happiness, you're probably not going to last very long or you're probably not going to have a very successful, happy, balanced life. Rather, my, my suggestion is actually you need to allocate that a little bit of fun money because it's only going to make it more practical, more sustainable for you in the long term. Another very practical step to get better with money is to let our interests guide us, right? And you touched on it very aptly where you say, a lot of times we focus our mindset on, you know, don't do this, don't do that. It's a lot of restrictive sort of mindset. But what you're saying is we should shift it from a more restrictive mindset to something that is fun. There's a, a fun element to it or a more positive element to it. So can you elaborate with us a little bit more on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very human nature for us to to go against restrictions. We, want, we almost want to rebel against restrictions. Think about our parents, our schools, they implement like 20 rules for us and we just feel like we're trapped and we want to escape. So I know the rules are there for a good reason, right? They, they are there to guide us, etc., for good behavior. But at the end of the day, the way to motivate people to do good things is not by en enforcing rules or like punishments or things like that. It's actually to motivate them towards positive effects. So you're not going to do so well by telling a person that, oh, you know, you have to save this money or you have to invest in this. Rather, you want to motivate that person and say that, oh, do you want a better life for your family? Or, you know, do you want a, a life where you can enjoy some of the nicer things? And then if you want that kind of life, you're going to need to start saving and investing when you're young. So I think that's a better way to motivate people. And it's not that the restrictions themselves are bad, but I feel that we have gone overly far in that direction and we need to swing it back to the positive side. In your article, you talk about how you first discovered your love and interest for cryptocurrency and you're currently the country manager of the first and largest international cryptocurrency exchange in Malaysia. So can you share with our listeners about how did you first discover this interest in cryptocurrency and how did that help you to shape your behavior around getting better with money? I think I first started in 2016 started reading about this new technology called Bitcoin. Very, very interesting because it's so different from anything that exists today in the financial world. And then people were calling it like a scam, a bubble. But the more I read, the more I understood it. And after I actually tried a little bit with my own money, and then I realized how powerful this concept was, how powerful this idea was that it could potentially just revolutionize the the current financial system, right? Which, you know, I mean, we're all very comfortable with it. I think it works to some level, but humanity is always in evolving. We're always changing. We're always improving. And 
to me, Bitcoin was one of those ideas that the more I studied it, the more I, I got this feeling that, you know, this is not going away. This is only going to get bigger. How that actually changed me personally is that the more I studied it, the more I felt that, you know, I'm interested to write about it, the more I'm interested to invest about it. And so happened that the opportunity to join crypto full-time as a full-time employee came knocking. And I also decided to to take that challenge. And I'm still here about three and a half years later. So that move actually worked out pretty okay. But I think the broader learning from this it isn't so much about crypto or investing. It's more like you will typically in your career or in your life, you will typically do better in things that you're very interested in, right? For me, it was crypto three and a half years ago. And actually now, even today, if you tell me that, you know, take a job in a industry or B industry, I would struggle to actually find an industry that excites me so much as the potential in crypto. So the, the sort of moral here is that you want to be exploring your interests because you will most likely be better at it. And, you know, even when things get bad, you will most likely have resilience. You'll be able to bounce back stronger as well. Now this, again, this, I, I don't want this to be the oversimplified advice that, you know, follow your passion and everything will be a bit of roses. Everything will be easy. It's not like that. Right. But you cannot deny that if you're interested in something, you will or you should naturally become better at it than perhaps 100 other, other competitors who are doing it just for the job. Yeah, definitely. I think you're so right when you say that let your interests guide you because, you know, there will be the, the highs and then there will be the lows. And when the lows come, and if you don't have an intrinsic motivation that's your guiding force, it's very easy for you to switch off and just be like, oh yeah, it might have just been a phase, you know, uh, something that you hopped onto a bandwagon because everyone else is doing it. But now, like you say, Aaron, three and a half years later and cryptocurrency is still something that um, you have used as your interest that has still um, helped you in getting better with money. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't, again, doesn't have to be so complex like crypto, right? For example, in my article, I stated that there's so many different aspects to, to personal finance. For example, there's saving, completely different almost from investing, which is completely almost different from insurance, which is basically protecting your assets, which is almost, say, completely different from something like generating a new stream of income, right? So there's so many, many different angles to personal finance. If you actually went through like financial planning course, then you have things like taxation as well. But the point I'm trying to make here isn't that you need to study like end-to-end -end like an academic. Rather, you start with the thing that makes most sense to you, that brings most interest in you initially, and then you learn, you grow from there. I, I read about this on your blog, Aaron, where you also touched about the idea of letting a medium that interests you be the one that you refer to when you talk about personal finance. So for example, for Janice and I, we're huge consumers of podcasts. And so the way we can learn more and improve more on our personal finances is by, for example, tuning into personal finance podcasting. And for yourself, you know, you're somebody who's a huge advocate for writing and you also follow a lot of incredible writers like Morgan Housen that you mentioned earlier on, right? So uh, that's another way that we can learn and let our interest guide us in a sense that it can be obtained from so many different other mediums yeah and i think what you guys are doing is is very important and it's very cool right because you guys like listening to podcasts i guess you've learned a lot from podcasts and now you're starting your own podcast to to talk uh, and you know discuss ideas maybe hopefully people that you find interesting as well so there's so many mediums for me it's absolutely writing because i'm not very good at 
YouTube videos or I'm not very good even at podcasts because I have a bit of a short attention span. But my point is that you can, in, in this world, you can actually let your interest guide you, whether it's tweets, whether it's Insta videos, whether it's TikTok, there's personal finance content on every medium and you just have to find something. And I'm pretty sure people can find something that they're interested in. Definitely. If you find a personal finance TikTok, please share it with us as well. <laughs> or he might be the next TikTok star, right? Yeah, or Aaron, is it you already? <laughs> you'll, you'll find so many investing videos on TikTok nowadays. I will, I will caution that a lot of these are, again, oversimplified. So might not be the best medium right now. But, you know, who knows? If you're a responsible content creator, yeah, TikTok needs you right now. <laughs> so actually on that note with what you mentioned about lots of information about personal finance being everywhere. It is true, you know, personal finance is now super accessible. There's a ton of information out there. Particularly, there's something we notice about the word automating everything, right? When it comes to personal finance, a lot of the gurus seem to be championing and advocating this, this concept about automating your money, simplifying uh, because it would help you simplify your life. And this is one of the rules that you also mentioned in your article. So we want to talk about that. You know, we all know how important it is to invest. But I think sometimes a lot of people, especially younger working professionals, they don't know where to start when it comes to automating their finances. So could you give our listeners um, an actionable tip on how they can even begin to think about the concept of automating their finances? And if there's any myths you like to debunk as well when it comes to automating your finances? I'm going to start this with a personal story because when I was in my mid to late 20s, I was basically like a money control freak, right? I, I have all these spreadsheets that I calculate my investments, I calculate my spending. I look at these things almost every day. And I thought that I'm in control. I'm going to do this. I'm so interested in it. I'm, I read about it all the time. But as I got older into my mid 30s, I realized that I actually don't have so much time to look at these kind of things anymore. And I started slipping. So for example, 10 years ago, if you tell me that I would make a late payment on my credit card, I would laugh you off, right? I'd be like, no, that's impossible. I will never ever pay a single fee on my credit cards because I know every hack or every tip in the book to maximize value from credit cards instead of actually paying fees using credit cards. But that has happened, right? Over time, I've discovered that all those things that I thought were I was also in control of, I'm not. it's not actually very practical for me nowadays because I have different priorities now, I have different things I'm looking at. So the best way, I think, for me at least, was to automate everything, to use all these platforms online. For example, um, using uh, tracking my expenses, I, I use an app for it. Then for most of my investments, I also use an app for it. And then everything that I do is... I would say 99% today, it is all on online platforms. So I don't even have to go out of the house and sign any documents, etc. So, and I'm just thinking that if someone like me, who's like pretty geeky, if even someone like me struggles with this kind of thing, I'm imagining that for many of us, many of us probably have less interest and probably maybe even find some of these things a bit intimidating. So where I came from when I wrote that article was that you would probably do good if you automated most of your investing stuff. And then it's almost like a, a bit of a paradox, right? Instead of, say, you have, I don't know, two hours or three hours of free time every day, instead of, you know, using your two to three hours, spending it, spreading it, 
thin over a lot of things that you're just sort of lukewarm, you're sort of half-hearted. Why not automate most of these things that you don't really care about so you can spend your two hours on something that you really like? For example, whether it's painting or baking or you know even watching Netflix. So that was the whole concept of automation, that you want to outsource the things that you don't really feel so strongly about and gives you more time to do the things that you really enjoy. I have a very interesting school of thought, a different school of thought that I've heard someone tell me before on this topic of automation, if you don't mind, Aaron, I just wanted to pick your brain. So when I was sharing with this friend of mine about how, you know, I was trying to do exactly that, right? Automating because it helps free up my time to do things that I care about more. She brought up the interesting point that, oh, she doesn't want to automate because by her spending, example, half an hour, one hour every month to... um consciously sort of transfer money to this and that account and be aware of the payments she's making. It gives her that sort of idea of control, number one. And it also has this approach where she's making very conscious decisions about where her money goes to. So I think for me, my takeaway from that, and I'm happy to hear your thoughts, right? My takeaway from that is kind of do what works for you. Automation might not be for everyone. In my case, I thought, oh, I'm happy if I don't have to spend time every month to do that. But for her, she viewed it as I want to be able to sit down at the end of every month to see where my money goes into. So what are some of your thoughts around it? So for me, if you ask me 10 years ago, I'm more like your friend. But 10 years later, I find myself in this situation where I don't want to to look at a lot of this stuff anymore for whatever reason, right? Maybe I've lost interest or maybe I feel that my energies could be more important, uh, well used somewhere else. Now, the one thing that I truly, truly enjoy or I'm interested in at the moment is crypto investing. So my philosophy right now is I'm going to try and outsource everything else. I'm going to use whatever tools available, even to the extent of using a licensed financial planner, which is of course not an automated platform, but it is in a way sort of outsourcing the tasks so that I can spend all the rest of my time like reading about crypto investing or even trying my hand at it. So again, this this concept of outsourcing what you don't really enjoy and focusing on what you do. Sometimes it's not also just only about not what you really enjoy, but perhaps it's about not what you might have the the strongest expertise in, right? Like, for example, you mentioned a financial planner. They might have more wider breadth of knowledge when it comes to different asset classes. So having a licensed financial planner to engage with when it comes to your financial planning might help you to make some uh, new decisions or interesting investments that you might not have initially thought about, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the other angle which I haven't brought up until you brought it up, which is the expertise, right? Mm. If you say that I'm going to manage everything 100% myself, which is great. I mean, I, I admire that spirit. But do you necessarily have the expertise to, to manage it 100% yourself? Would you do better if instead of, say, 100%, you try doing it maybe 50%, but with the other 50%, you are trying to learn from somebody or you're trying to pick it up from books, etc. So I think, again, it's not a one solution fits all kind of thing, but it's the, the balance that you want to find between doing everything yourself and also leaning on external expertise. Aaron, in your article, The Practicality of Money, one of the points you brought up as well is on accumulating small wins so it's less intimidating. So can you share with us what did accumulating small wins look like for you in different stages of your life? The concept of accumulating small wins is because I think when I was much younger, when I was, again, in my mid-20s, 
there's always this this fantasy, almost this dream that you know someday I'm gonna do my my own business, someday I'm gonna launch my own uh, thing. And I realized that perhaps I didn't take the step because it was too huge a step. I'm very comfortable in my day job, like. For me to just drop everything and start a business, it, it feels very, very intimidating. And then I realized that actually that's kind of the same principle that goes across any time that you want to make any sort of change or improvement in your life. If, if you are struggling to take action because of whatever reason, very often it's because that step may be too big from what you're doing right now. And I'll give some simple examples of where it started for me. I've always admired people who write well online. I've always been a consumer of articles and I always thought that I wanted to start my own blog, my own writing online. For me, that very, very small step from a church friend of mine who back then, she was writing for a, a magazine. And I was so scared at the time, right? I was like, could you introduce me to your editor? Like, would you have a, a need for another writer? And so it happened that it worked out. The editor actually gave me a chance, decided to allow me to start writing. And back then it was, I think, just for 25 ringgit an article. You know, something really, really small. But to me, it was like almost a huge win, right? It was the difference between not writing and being a so-called published author online. So that's just one very simple example of taking one minor step towards your dream or your goal. And I've tried to apply this to every other improvement project or every other goal that I've ever had. Like if something is too scary, just take one small step because that little small step is the one that's going to motivate you to do more next. You touched on the idea of goals, right? And in this case of setting up goals when it comes to personal finance, I think the idea of having a lofty goal might seem too far-fetched or too out of reach. And I just wanted to tie it to James Clear's book on Atomic Habits, where he talks about how goals can provide direction and even push you forward in the short term. But eventually, a well-designed system will always win. And having a system is what eventually matters. So share with us a little bit, Aaron, about what other systems that you had in place in your personal life in achieving some of these initial personal finance goals. The big difference that worked for me actually in my own personal finance journey is the concept of automation or paying yourself first, automatically making deductions to, to pay yourself first. And why I say that is because before that, before I implemented some kind of system to automatically deduct money, I never could actually save money because my concept is, okay, I have a budget, right? Imaginary, not even imaginary, a written down budget. But I'm thinking that, okay, I'm going to spend all this at the end of the month, whatever money I have left over, I'm going to invest that money. Never happened for like two years, 100% never happened because at the end of the month, I had spent all my money. So I figured the only way I was going to get around that is immediately when I get the salary, that's when I have to make the deduction and put my money away for savings and investment. And that was the big difference between having no savings and actually being able to start building that emergency fund and investment. That ties into the principle of compounding as well, right? Which is something that you have written about many times. And I think a lot of us, we're not really aware of the principle of compounding because like you mentioned, the instinct to when you get your salary every month is to pay off all your debt, right? We are taught to clear all your debt first and then with whatever leftover, then you can only start thinking about investing. But I think what you mentioned about reversing that mindset and paying yourself first and investing in yourself first, having that um, money automated 
that you don't think about it, it, it nicely sets up a system for you that you don't even have to be conscious and spend precious, you know, brain space thinking about how you're going to allocate uh, that percentage every month, right? Yeah, I think talking about brain space, mind space, this is something that it often goes unnoticed because it actually takes a lot of mental energy and mental effort to do things repeatedly, mm. especially if they don't come naturally to you, right? For example, there's some studies which have shown that people who are slim and fit and athletic, it's not because they have huge super discipline or anything, but the major fact is actually because they are people who, for whatever reason, they enjoy working out and they enjoy eating healthy, right? So you kind of will naturally fall towards your natural tendencies. And the way to counteract that, if, if your natural tendency is not to save and invest money, as I think most of us, that's not a natural tendency, by the way, the, the way to counteract that is actually to have that system in place because then it becomes automatic and you don't even have to spend any energy. It just happens. So on that note, we do want to ask you about one of the money principles that you mentioned in your blog, which is to prioritize the big things. And you talk about, you know, not wasting that brain space about sweating the small stuff, but to instead focus on keeping the biggest expenses. So you mentioned the three biggest expenses, such as housing, transportation, and food, keep that under control. Uh, but many young professionals, you know, like Sarah, myself, and perhaps you as well, we've been conditioned since young to think that every little penny saved would add up so that Malay proverb, sikit sikit lama jadi bukit comes to mind. And we would like to ask you, how would we be able to best strike a balance between not being extremely frugal and being a spendthrift? Do you have any tips on that? Yeah, I think it's something that we've talked about a bit earlier, which is having that blow budget. So I think you have to figure out on a monthly basis, actually, this is how much money I need. Okay, this is how much money I plan to save. You have that allocated budget. I don't know whatever it is. It could be 200 ringgit. It could be 500 ringgit. It could be $1,000 depending on your situation. And then with that money, right, just do whatever you want. Go crazy. In my article, I said buy a latte tower if you want, right? Don't, don't, don't just buy a small latte. Like literally do anything you want with that money as long as it makes you happy, as long as it brings value to your life. And I say this because... Again, when I was in my mid-20s, early 20s, I literally count down to the dollar. Like, you know, I'm going to save even 10 cents or 50 cents. I literally know exactly where these things are. And if you zoom out to a helicopter view, you know, they call it the 30,000 feet view, you realize that saving that one ringgit, two ringgit, financially at least, in terms of dollars and cents, it's actually not going to make a big difference to your financial destiny or future. The big things that are going to make a big difference are, again, your housing, your transportation, and your food. So if you take care of these three big things by right, you should be doing okay. And you don't have to go down to the, the very penny-wise kind of level of thinking, or oh, should I buy this six ringgit 50 cents coffee versus the six ringgit 70 cents coffee and i'm trying to save that 20 cents you know it's okay to treat yourself to the 10 ringgit coffee if you have everything else under control mm. but uh, you also mentioned in your article to do this reasonably right not to go mm -hmm. overboard with the treat yourselves and you know you end up having a, a latte every single day <laughs> right, that might be right potentially catastrophic right yeah, and I think that's where the, the concept of ratios is it, it, very helpful. So, for example, the one I mentioned earlier, the concept of 
30% on once. As long as you're doing all your discretionary spending, buying your lattes or going out to eat with your friends or going to bars, if that is within the 30% of your once based on your monthly salary, let's say that budget is $1,000 and you're spending within that $1,000, you should not feel unhappy. You should not feel like I need to cut down further. Rather, you should celebrate and be happy because you are actually sticking to your goal And then over the long term, you should be doing really well. Yeah, actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that 50, 30, 20, right? I'm kind of curious to know, how often do you audit that and recalibrate your expenses? Do you do like a weekly tracking thing or do you have a monthly tracking thing to make sure you're on check in terms of the ratios that you've set up for yourself? So I do it on a monthly basis. It Again, these to me, they're more like guidelines. And I would recommend it for say someone who's new to it, who's just starting out, you may need to be a little bit more strict on yourself. Because when you're starting out, you know, you can't view everything as a sort of wishy-washy guideline because you want to discipline yourself. You want to have that system in place. But over time, the longer you do it, the, lo- the, the better you get at it. And, you know, hopefully over time, as your uh, income goes up, you will realize that if this month I actually spend 11% on something versus 10%, it's actually not going to matter so much in the long run. So I view this kind of things as a guideline. But again, like any other rules or guidelines, the more you do it, the, the better you get at it. And the better you get at it, the more rules you can break. On that note, on the sixth principle that you share on how to get better with money in practical ways, it's about keep learning as well as keep growing. So what is something that continues to drive you in your journey of endless growth? I've always been someone that's pretty curious about learning things and, and figuring out how the world works. So I've, I figured that if I just allow that process to naturally happen, I, I am going to learn more. I'm going to read more books. I'm going to read more articles. So it's quite natural for me. But that being said, this is quite different from everyone else, right? Because I think humans are generally curious. Humans generally like progress. We generally evolve towards improving ourselves. So if for whatever reason people aren't motivated to learn or people, you know, finding excitement or in, in improving, I think it's probably maybe because they are consuming the perhaps wrong material. They might be reading stuff that's overly judgmental or like setting a lot of barriers that makes people actually shy away. And it goes back to the earlier point about finding something that interests you, that makes sense for you, because there's so much material out there there should be something that that inspires you. And another thing I remember, Aaron, you spoke about in the blog post is this curious case of how you actually have no formal qualifications to write about money, no financial degree, no professional certificates. And although you write about many other things from life, career, relationships, but one of the key topics you speak about is on finance. So with all that, I do assume that you know, in this spirit of continuous improvement and endless growth, you have a feedback loop on how you can continue to see yourself get better and better. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on that? When we talk about feedback loops, you know, I I always feel that this is something that I should have been braver about earlier in my life because I think I spent a couple of years, especially when in my early career, trying shying away from feedback because, you know, Oh, what if my boss tells me that I suck? Or what if a reader tells me that I suck? But actually, feedback loops are really important because they help you improve. They let you know what you're doing not so good that you you should improve the next time. And especially if you're doing something, you know, in terms of like starting a business or 
even exploring a new job. Those feedback loops are so important because they tell you what you're good at or what you can potentially make a good living at. And without actually taking that little step of putting yourself out there, then you may not be able to get an accurate, you know, realistic representation of yourself or how the world sees you. So that was the, the scary feedback loop thingy. You know, every time I write an article and, and send it out, it's, it's pretty scary still. What if I get like hate, hate comments? But yeah, over time, I've, I've learned that hopefully I've, I'm bringing value to people with my writing. You certainly are, Aaron. I mean, both Sarah and myself, we've definitely derived a lot of value from all the content that you've put out there and from this very conversation itself. As we're coming towards the wrap-up of our conversation, we've talked so much throughout this episode about what the best practices of personal finance are. And we all know there's um, lots of advice out there and some even contradictory advice. What is one of the biggest myths of personal finance out there that you would like to debunk? Well, that's a tough one. Oh, thanks for the, the kind words, by the way. I think the big myth that I, I want to debunk here is that there's one hallowed, chosen pathway to, to happiness and, and success in money. Personal finance is not, you know, there's not just one path. There's not just one guru or there's not just one prophet. It's not a religion. Personal finance, it means very, very different things for everyone. And one person may feel comfortable with retiring with one house and then he has a happy family and he's fine with that. And then somebody else may want to retire early at 35 years old and be very happy with not even owning a house. The nomad kind of lifestyle living in, say, um, Indonesia or a country where it's pretty cheap. And that's okay for that person. And then someone may want something more traditional. For example, somebody may want to become a CEO and then retire at 60 with three kids. So the whole concept that there's only one path. That's the biggest myth. To me, what's more important is you figure out what makes sense for you, where you're heading. And that, that goes back to the whole feedback loop thingy. You have to constantly be asking, challenging yourself like, you know, is this bringing happiness? Is it bringing value to my life? And if it's not, then, you know, thankfully, we have the opportunity to shift, to move towards a direction that makes more sense for us. And so on that note, Aaron, one question that we'd like to ask all our guests on the Explore This podcast is, what is something you would like to explore more of? If I have a current muse or something that's been pretty mind-blowing for me, it's the concept of blockchain, NFT, gaming right now. So not sure if you guys have heard of this game called Axie Infinity, which is taking the, the world by storm a bit in certain parts of the world, at least because people are actually literally giving up their full-time jobs to play games and they're actually getting rewarded quite well. Now, the, the morality of the situation or whatever, I'm a bit unsure right now, right? Even the ethics of the situation, I'm a bit unsure, but the concept really, really blows my mind. Now. Is this concept of play to earn games, which is happening in the blockchain crypto space? And it's something that I'm eagerly exploring right now. Ooh. All right, let us know when you officially become a professional gamer slash professional blogger too. <laughs> you might start yeah. a movement right there, Aaron. Yeah, I, I don't think I would become a professional gamer myself, but I'm just, you know, I'm super, super interested in it because the, the whole concept of it is something new and then there's obviously new economics going to take place. So yeah, it's just something that I'm super enthused to learn about right now. 
Love it, love it. Keep on exploring and keep on discovering new things, right? And so there you have it. Thank you so much, Aaron, for helping us dive deeper into today's topic on how we can get better at money practically. And from the bottom of our hearts, you know, Sarah and I really hope that this conversation has helped to broaden our thought processes about the realities of how we can all get better at managing our personal finance through practical steps. So thank you so much for your time, Aaron. Thank you, Janice and Sarah. It's been a pleasure. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! 